Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. My name is Kiff Scheuer, Climate Change Program Director at the Local Government Commission and one of your hosts. Our goal here on Infinite Earth Radio is to create more resilient and livable communities by fostering knowledge exchange, identifying new resources, and sharing innovative perspectives and tools. Today, our guest is Rob Lempert. Dr. Lempert is a principal researcher at the RAND Corporation and director of the Frederick S. Pardee Center for Longer Range Global Policy and the Future Human Condition. His research focuses on risk management, decision-making under conditions of deep uncertainty. He's also a fellow with the American Physical Society, a chapter lead for the fourth U.S. National Climate Assessment, a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change sixth assessment report, and the inaugural president of the Society for Decision-Making Under Deep Uncertainty. And if that was not enough, he's a professor of policy analysis in the party ran graduate school. Rob, thank you so much for joining us here on Infinite Earth Radio. My pleasure, Kiff. I look forward to talking with you. So let's jump right in. I'm really excited to have you here with us today to share a part of the national climate assessment that you worked on, particularly the chapter on adaptation. The assessment as a whole got a fair amount of coverage, both obviously because it was released under the Trump administration and because of what it had to say about the state of climate change in America. So why don't you provide some context on the assessment, what it is, who produced it, what are some of its bigger goals? Great. Yeah. So this is the government report that came out last month, uh, not two months ago, the, the day after Thanksgiving. It's a congressionally mandated report, and it requires the um, federal government to produce every four years a assessment of climate science and the effects, implications on U.S. society. So it gathers together hundreds of two or 300 authors, uh, scientists, other experts, and tries to summarize what's going on with climate change, what we expect, and what the implications are. So this assessment had 29 chapters. They're divided up. Most of them look at sectors, water, ecosystems, sea level rise, that sort of thing, and regions, uh, the Southwest, Northwest, Pacific Islands, Northeast, that sort of thing. Excellent. And tell us maybe a little bit about the chapter on adaptation, which obviously got you me to reach out to you because that's an issue that I've been working on a lot. How is it different from the other chapters? How did it come about? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, there, there are two broad overview chapters in the assessment focusing on the two broad general ways to respond and address climate change. And so there's a chapter on mitigation that is reducing emissions of greenhouse gases to limit the magnitude of climate change. And then one on adaptation, which is how do we respond to the impacts that we are going to see? And so our chapter was focused on adaptation, which the word refers to the actions that people, local governments, regional regions, and the national government can take to reduce the risks from change climate conditions, both those the conditions that have changed today and we expect to change in the future. And basically, how do you assess those risks and how do you respond to them? So we actually had a, we had a 
great chapter group. And, and in some ways, ours our lineup was a little bit different than others. We had some scientists uh, on board, but we also had a lot of local practitioners, people from, from local governments who were on the ground working on adaptation. So we, we tried to pull together the information from throughout the report, look at what people were doing across the country and try to summarize that in our chapter. Excellent. That's great context. And one of the things that jumped out to me is that the evidence seems clear from the way the report is presented that climate change is already occurring and is perhaps worse than expected. I think uh, we saw this week that the believe the Times had a story that seas are heating faster than expected, up to 40% faster. What should our listeners know about this growing body of evidence that adaptation is occurring? Yeah, so uh, Kif, what you said is is exactly right, that we often or sometimes used to think of climate change as something that would happen in the future or that would happen to other people. And it's increasingly clear that climate change is something that's happening now. So climate change is something that's happening in the present, and it's something that will change more in the future. And it's what, you know, one thing that people ought to know, first off, is that there's a lot we know about climate change, essentially for sure. I mean, we know it is warmer. We know it's going to get warmer. We know that there's going to be more energy, more moisture in, in, in the atmosphere. We know the seas are going to rise. And so there's some things that we know for sure and have risen and are, are going to rise the seas. But we also know that there's a lot that's likely to surprise us with climate change because we don't know exactly how it will change storm frequencies. We don't know how much the, the, the seas are going to rise. So people ought to expect change, that's for sure. But we also ought to expect surprises. So some of those will be um, bad ones. I mean, this this report that just came out recently that said the seas are warming faster than we had expected. That's not particularly good news. Though sometimes, you know, the worst cases seem to get a little bit less worse. Uh, there's were some recent papers recently that lowered a little bit some of the maximum expected sea level rise this century. So expect change, expect some things to happen for sure, and expect some surprises. Any of the kind of evidence that's already here, examples, you mentioned sea level rise, other areas that sort of jumped out at you as surprising or stark? I mean, I think the thing that, I don't know if I'd call it surprising per se, but it is the extent to which we really are starting to see quite significant change. The climate science community has gotten a lot better in recent years in what they call attribution and being able to say that a particular storm or or activity, while you can't say it's definitely, you know, 100% due to climate change, you can begin to say things like this storm would is very unlikely to occur. And in some cases, you know, it would not have occurred if it were not for climate change. So the impacts are now real. They are, we see them, they're significant. And we can say, in many cases, this is due to, in some or entirety, to climate change. Interesting. Thanks for that clarification. So the big question many in our audience are asking is, are we preparing? Are communities in the U.S. starting to adapt to climate change? In brief, yes, but not fast enough. So so one of the things that we did in our chapter is uh, survey what's going on in the country, both the, the academic literature and reporting on it and, uh, you know, what's actually happening on the ground. And in particular, looked, you know, what has happened since the last climate assessment? That's the way these assessments are organized. You know, this is the fourth national climate assessment. The last one was the third, which came out in 2014. And so, so you know, what happened since then? And so it's useful to divide adaptation into five stages. Awareness, we're aware that climate change is, is an issue. Assessment, where you s- 
sit down and say, what are the vulnerabilities of my community? Is it sea level rise? Is it fire? Is it extreme heat? so forth. And, you know, what parts, what are our vulnerabilities? Then the, the third is planning, putting together a plan on what we're going to do to respond to it. Then implementation, implementing the plan. And then importantly, monitoring, evaluation, and repeating, seeing how we're doing, seeing whether the assumptions that are built into our plan are coming to pass or whether things are worse or better than we thought, and then readjusting plan. So those are the five, five stages. And what we found is there is definitely a lot more assessment and planning going on in the country than there was a couple of years ago. Many, many community, more communities now done their assessment, vulnerability assessments are, are into their planning stage. We're still just at the sort of baby steps in, in implementation. There's a lot more implementation going on than there was five years ago, but it's still just beginning to happen. So a lot of planning and assessment, just the opening stages of people actually implementing those plans. And I don't know if there's a question you got to see with some of the work around where people were, but did you see any geographic differences? I'll set California aside because I'm pretty sure I know that there's a lot more going on there. But I'm curious if you saw some geographic differences in where people at in stages of response. No, we did not. I mean, it's in part, it's the data is not good enough to do that sort of survey. Though, though I would say that people across the country are starting to to take uh, climate change pretty seriously. You know, even in places where they don't like talking about climate change or human-caused climate change, and that for a variety of reasons, people are still beginning to take action to adapt to rising seas and more extreme storms. So there may be differences across the country, but there's the sort of denial or uh, refusing to engage that you often see on the mitigation side is less so on the adaptation side. Well, that's really interesting to hear. So that, of course, raises the question is why aren't people doing more? I think you, you indicated they're, they're not as far along as they might be given the, the immediacy of the effects. What are some of the barriers that you're seeing out there that our communities are grappling with? Yeah. And so um, there's really two big barriers if you want to sort of put them in big baskets. I mean, one, and perhaps we can get to this one a little bit more, more later, is, is adaptation often requires paying now for benefits later. And that can be hard to do. But the other one is just, I think, the novelty of it. And one of the themes, issues we try to surface in our chapter is this notion that adapting to climate change requires really understanding at a sort of a, you know, so throughout your organization, throughout your community, the idea that current and future climate are no longer well approximated by past climate. This has a name in the scientific literature called climate stationarity or the, the death of stationarity. And, and this is, in some ways, this assumption that to figure out what the climate is today or what it's going to be tomorrow, you look at what it has been, is really embedded really deeply in the way we do things. And to deal with climate change, we have to change that assumption and Sometimes that can be hard. I mean, just just a very simple example, if you're going to plant a garden, right, you might get some gardening guide and it would tell you what climate zone you're in, right? You look at a map and see what climate zone you're in, and then you would adjust your garden and your plants based on that. But it's not clear that you're still in the same climate zone that the book or the website says you are unless they've explicitly gone through and adjusted it. 
Um, and it's not clear if you're in a particular climate zone today, you're going to be in that same climate zone in the future. And that simple thing for your own garden is carries out, you know, throughout our regulatory processes, our design processes, you know, if you're going to design a bridge or a building and to the way we plan our water systems. And so this notion that, you know, we need to go through all the different plans and activities we do, look carefully, see where um, where we've assumed that climate's going to stay the same and change that assumption. And one of the reasons that's hard is that it often requires, you know, organizations to do novel things. Let's say you're going to, you're building a bridge. Uh, traditionally, what we would do is uh, you would look at the historical record at that particular site and you'd say, what was the biggest flood that's ever occurred here? What are the highest winds? And then you would build build to those um, criteria. But now we know that the biggest flood in the future may be different. The winds may be higher. The, the heat may be higher. And the engineer needs to decide, well, how big might the flood be? And figure out how to make that judgment. And then it may require, first off, it may um, increase the cost, but it also, you know, who takes the risk of if the climate changes faster or slower than, than we think? So it raises a whole bunch of challenging questions and we have to do things differently. So I'm guessing this is <laughs> the work of the Society for Decision-Making Under Deep Uncertainty, because I got to tell you, I don't like the sound of having to make choices like that. Yeah, the Society um, focuses on a wide variety of topics, but it is a, um, a main one are these climate change issues. And many of the, and it's a society of both researchers and, and practitioners, many from, many of the practitioners come from water management, coastal management, these sorts of frontline areas uh, dealing with climate change. And the basic theme is exactly to deal with these sorts of problems of how do we make plans that are robust and flexible, meaning that they work over a wide range of futures? So, and that can adjust over time as we see how the future might evolve. So a question in that vein is, is obviously researchers are maybe better at this, but the average person doesn't deal well with this. And how much are you guys grappling with the political and psych, frankly, psychological or emotional elements of trying to make these shifts in how we make decisions? Yeah, no, that is a really great question because on one hand, people deal with uncertainty all the time in their lives and, uh, you know, make decisions under uncertainty are quite comfortable doing that. But in the public sphere, that's not the way things commonly are done. And so, yes, people do try to grapple with the political and, and the psychological elements. And many, and, and this is one of the, the, the changes that need to occur to try to, to adapt more effectively. But the previous state of the art for water planning in a place like California, which um, lives in a semi-arid climate, and so it's, you know, water supplies are difficult to make reliable, is that you do a 25, 25-year plan. And in fact, water agencies are mandated to come up with a 25-year plan. And sort of the, the previous state of the art is you'd have a, an expected future and then a, a worst-case drought of record. This, is, again, is all taken from the historical record, and you plan against that. And what many water agencies are starting to do and what our Society for Decision-Making Under Deep Uncertainty is working with many agencies trying to help them do is go to very explicit contingency plans so that the plan is, this is what we're going to do now. We're going to monitor these factors. We're going to say monitor how the climate's changing or how development is occurring. Is it occurring in ways that are saving lots of water or occurring in ways that are, are using more water than we think? And then have explicit 
responses depending on what you see. So it's, it's basically act, monitor, and respond. And that's a different sort of plan and a different sort of language than the political system and in, in many ways the regulatory and, and, and uh, you know, legal system is, is, is set up for. But the idea is to shift confidence not into a projection and then a plan based on a projection, but shift confidence into we have a plan that is can take anything that comes, that is robust to anything that comes. And, um, you know, that I think is a, um, is a learning process. So we had one agency that we worked for, which is really one this direction, and, but it was very shy about the first step in, in developing an adaptive plan is doing a vulnerability analysis to say, okay, if, if we take these actions, what future combinations of climate change and societal change will make this plan not meet its goals? And then you figure out how you would adjust if you end up in that scenario. But this particular agency was very reluctant to have any vulnerabilities made public during the lifetime of the plan. So they wanted all the vulnerabilities to be further out so that they wouldn't have to admit there were vulnerabilities in the 25-year lifetime of the plan. That's a, an interesting way to face your uh, the reality is to actually hide it away from yourself. It sounds like a lot of the other barriers that I noted in the report kind of spin around this. There were discussions of the time scale, the ability of institutions to adjust and evolve. Do you think the stationarity concept is really at the heart of a lot of which is going to challenge us with this? You mentioned also paying for the future versus paying today. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the challenge of doing new things, of innovation, is often hard in the public sector, doing it at the rate and the, the scale that we need to do it. You know, for some bad, you know, quote unquote, bad reasons, you know, leaders are often elected, you know, for two or four year terms. And so they may not have uh, pay attention to the longer term that everybody may be scrambling around dealing with a, a crisis and not paying attention to the longer term. So those are the, you know, sort of the bad reasons. But the sort of the important or the, you know, the good reasons are um, government is inherently both trying to, you know, be careful and it's taking into account competing views. The Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs I read recently, and it's wonderful. And you know, so Steve Jobs at Apple did all these, you know, created all these wonderful things, changed our world in all sorts of wonderful ways. But you read about how he did that. It was great for, you know, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, but you wouldn't want any government official to behave that way. You know, he sort of, he made up things that were unlikely to occur and insisted they would happen and to, in order to motivate people. You know, there was a lot of collateral damage. He took wild risks. You know, he got fired, nearly destroyed the company. You know, so he did a bunch of things and didn't listen to anybody else. And I would say he, having read the book as well, he had a product he had a vision for an impact, but we're not talking about whole communities. It was a product, uh, which is a much more singular thing to drive forward. Exactly. Yeah. And so government needs to be careful. It needs to listen to all the voices. And at the same time, it needs to um, reinvent itself to deal with both this climate challenge and all the other changes. Uh, people have used the analogy of uh, re-engineering an airplane while you're flying in it. It is a not a trivial challenge. To that point, there were two elements of the uh, of the chapter that also jumped out at me as it's it turned its attention to where do we go with this idea, and it's it's a variation of the concept of being innovative, but being proactive, but also at the same time, there's a discussion of mainstreaming, and there's a bit of a tension between those two things. I'd love to hear some ideas and or examples of where you see this happening in ways that our audience could look at and understand what it means to be both proactive and to mainstream these efforts. Okay. Um, you're right. There, there is certainly a tension. And let me kind of 
lay out those two ideas and show where they overlap and, and where there, there's a tension. So being proactive is taking action in response to expectations of change as opposed to change that's already occurred so that you prepare for the flood or the fire before it happens. And so people are beginning to, to be proactive. The first proactive thing to do is to do this assessment and, and the planning and not wait for things to happen. And so people are beginning to do that. And when you do the assessment and the planning, sometimes you find there are things that you can, you can wait on that you don't need to be, um, you know, you don't need to take proactive action. So that often occurs with things which aren't to, um, don't, aren't expected to last a long time or aren't, aren't to expect, you know, so all the lifeguard stations along the beach, right? You don't need to be too proactive with those in terms of sea level rise or storm frequency. If the seas rise, you just pick them up and move them back. And if you make a mistake and they get wiped out in a storm, it's not that big a deal. But for other things, it is really important to be proactive. And you start to see that going on. And we've got some examples um, in the chapter, you know, Miami Beach, it's often the, the frontline places, but Miami Beach is spending large sums of money to raise its roads, to harden its buildings, uh, deal with uh, the flooding. And it is certainly not proactive in the sense that they've started, They've see, it's in response to a lot of flooding, but they are building proactively to deal with higher sea levels than they currently see. Many water agencies in, in, in the West are um, uh, you know, diversifying their supplies, emphasizing efficiency, starting to build these, these contingency plans. Um, uh, California, just uh, I think you had a, a podcast on this, on um, the, the, the climate safe infrastructure uh, working group and plans, paying it forward, which is um, starts laying out a series of um, ways to adjust engineering standards and guidelines in the state to make infrastructure more resilient to climate change. So there are a lot of things going on and people are taking proactive actions. This idea of mainstreaming is the notion that governments, uh, agencies do do risk management, often explicitly or at least implicitly, you know, assess what dangers or risks are out there and respond to it. And mainstreaming is basically is just taking those processes and noting that climate has changed and will change and looking at those risks. So, you know, here in, in the city of Santa Monica, where, where I am now, they, um, you know, they get, we get much of our water from the aquifer. And so the city is assessing what's the sustainable yield on the aquifer. And after a little bit of kerfuffle, said, oh, yeah, no, we need to base our estimates of sustainable yield not on the historic rainfall data, but on future climate projections and put together some different climate projections to see what the yield of our groundwater might be in, under different climate scenarios and then plan accordingly. So that's, that's a good example of mainstreaming. There's a particular government agency. It's got a process and it's replacing the historical record with some, some climate scenarios. That is mainstreaming. But then there are challenges of that, and that will reduce some risk, but then there are challenges that require going beyond mainstreaming, which will require more significant both institutional changes and more significant actions. And sea level rise is, you know, is, is the classic case of that, where it may be that some places where we currently live, we will not be able to live in the future, and we need to figure out how to have a safe, equitable retreat from those areas. And that is not something that anybody has any existing institutions or plans for doing in any reasonable way at this point. 
Well, that actually goes right to my last question, which we're always concerned about here on Infinite Earth Radio, which is is those equitable impacts. And I think it's pretty clear that climate change is going to have, is having a greater impact on those who are more vulnerable, those who already face inequities. Given these institutional changes, which are going to be hard, these process changes, which are going to be challenging and some which are beyond our resources today, how Tell me a little bit about your thoughts, the work may not be out there, about these differential impacts and how we might build an equitable response. Yeah. So um, we talk about that some in our chapter. You know, we note that people are not uniformly vulnerable to climate change and uh, it depends on um, culture, wealth and so forth. And uh, often climate change hits poor people the hardest, both because they live in more dangerous areas and because they lack the capacity to deal with it. You know, wealthier people, for instance, might have a lot more air conditioning than, than poorer people and so are better able to deal with, with extreme heat, heat events, just to have a, you know, an obvious example. So, I mean, the first thing is to notice these differential impacts. You know, so often, and people are, are you know, beginning to do a much better job of this, but, you know, if you report average numbers, so you look at a benefit cost analysis with average numbers, it makes the differential impacts go away. And so you really need to compare across a, a colleague of mine has a great slide where he shows a few hundred very poor houses uh, along a coastline and then one very rich mansion. And he says, okay, if you do the cost benefit analysis, they're both the same, but they're not, right? So we talk in our chapter about when you assess the benefits of adaptation and are looking at different adaptation options, you need a broad measures, broad measures of social welfare, of which is a key part. It's important to listen, to bring people into the process so that you see what their concerns and trade-offs are. So for instance, going back to the sea level rise again, you know, it often makes sense to defend, spend a lot of money to defend the most, you know, expensive places, you know, lower Manhattan with, you know, big walls and things like that and other communities, you know, relocate. But if you're going to, which at some levels unfair, but at another level, you know, if you talk to those people there, it's sometimes the case that, you know, they might be willing to relocate, but they care a lot what happens. And so if you People relocate and the area goes back to nature. So it's sort of, you know, it's a framing of, you know, we were there for a while, but people really should, shouldn't have been there or don't, can't be there in the future. And it goes back to nature and people can use it for recreation and such. That's different than, oh, well, now we've got some land and we can build some expensive, you know, very hardened and protected new development in this uh, threatened by sea level rise area. So how you do things matters a lot. And then, you know, spending the money to um, provide people the, the, the capacity to adapt, you know, whether it's um, having ways that people can insulate their houses or, um, you know, have more cooling and stuff like that, making sure the resources flow to that, but just also making sure that people have the ability to understand. We don't talk about this, I think, in the report, but we've been involved in some citizen science projects where people, you know, go out and measure groundwater or they measure rainfall and, and, you know, it's things you can do across communities and people in all communities can get a sense of where the risks come from, which does a great, a good job of helping people understand what they can do about it. So this capacity building is also important. And it goes right back to that psychological and political will that we, we talked about earlier. That's, that's really interesting. Thank you. Well, I could keep talking to you about this all day long and we have a long, long road ahead of us clearly, but I think we're out of time. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rob. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. I've very much enjoyed it. Well, and thank you all for joining us and thank you to our listeners. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. 
Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.